Welcome to the Climate Chronicles podcast by SkySpecs, the show where we explore the latest wind and renewable energy trends, industry expertise, and best practices that can help us deliver the most efficient energy generation in the world. Let's jump into the latest episode. Uh, welcome once again to SkySpecs Climate Chronicles podcast, where we explore some of today's biggest issues facing the renewable energy industry. I'm Sarah Lights, Head of Marketing here at SkySpecs, and my co-host is our CRO, Josh Borrell. And our guest for today is Pauline Searless, who is the Senior Project Manager on the Renewables Development Team at NL. Welcome, Pauline. Before we get started on some of the, the deep questions that we have, we like to just start off with some of the like getting to know you fun questions, just to do a little icebreaker. Perfect. Um, one of the questions that we have for you is what are one of uh, the most memorable vacations that you have? Memorable vacations. Um, I would probably have to say a trip to Thailand that I took my senior year in college. Um, it was the last spring break of spring breaks that I would ever have. And um, I found a volunteer organization um, that basically tries to provide sanctuaries to elephants that have been uh, working elephants and kind of get them away from that environment. And so I met up with one of my friends there. We stayed in a hostel for a couple nights in Chiang Mai and then went out to the jungle for like almost a week and uh, woke up to the sounds of roosters and took naps in the woods next to elephants and ate some of the best food I've ever eaten in my entire life. And it was absolutely magical <laughs> that sounds amazing i have yeah, always incredible. wanted to go to top <laughs> i have always wanted to go to thailand i'm gonna have to reach out to you and ask you a bunch of questions after the yeah. fact so you're gonna uh, don't recommend uh, elephants are also my favorite animal so like that was the pinnacle or that was the impetus for wanting to do that program and then just the whole scenario was amazing are you gonna do it again do you have, you have like future trip plans like that or I, I do like trying to do like volunteer or kind of just more off the grid or less touristy based vacations. Um, I haven't thought about going back to that exact program, but they do have multiple locations in Thailand. And I think they also have like a few other kind of Asian and maybe African locations. I'm not entirely sure. I haven't looked back at them recently, but yes, <laughs> just the food alone was outstanding. Just I don't know. It was like uh, our hosts were from the Karen tribe, which is kind of a local, um, a smaller tribe within Thailand and their spin on kind of Thai classics and all of that. And that was a huge, huge vats of food that you could just eat for days. And we did. And it was good. Oh man, you make me want to leave tomorrow. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So one more question, and then we'll jump into uh, the Q and A portion. Um, do you have any pet peeves? And if you do, are any of them kind of like weird or odd or strange? I, I think my partner will attest that I'm a particular person when it comes to quite a few things. Uh, but if I had to pick a more of the odd ones, I would probably say windshield wiper speeds when somebody. 
has them at what I perceive to be the incorrect speed, most particularly when they're just going too fast or excessively fast for the amount of rainfall that there is or is not happening. That's not a bad one. Yeah, and like when it kind of squeaks on the windshield too. Yeah, Uh, yeah. It doesn't even have to be squeaking for it to bother me. If it's just like you're just aggressively wiping the water away from your windshield, I'm like, I, I, if I'm the passenger, I will say something. (laughs) Sometimes I'll be driving and like the rain will stop, and then I just won't even notice that they're still going. My wife will be like, "Are you kidding me? They're exactly they're still on." My favorite invention, is, or one of my favorite car inventions, is the smart windshield wipers that just oh, yeah. turn on when it's raining. Though I, I have them on my car, but still have yet to figure out how I like their speed allocation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's Sometimes I just it, turn- oh, go ahead. When it doesn't pick it up correctly, that's yeah. when you're like, yeah, it should, it should adjust to the amount of rain, and then it still doesn't. Right. Or like you like go under a bridge or something and then there's like five drops of water and it just starts your windshield wipers and you're like, wait, um, <laughs> don't need this on yet. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Let's uh, jump into the actual portion of the, of the podcast. <laughs> um, to get us started into the, the Q&A portion. Uh, t- well, how about you just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your journey into your current role? Yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, in college, I studied, I did a program between Goodmore College and Dartmouth College where I basically did all my liberal arts schooling at Skidmore um, and studied physics and then had two years to get an engineering degree at Dartmouth where I concentrated in environmental engineering. Um, originally, when I went down the engineering path, I thought I wanted to be kind of more civil focused, um, do more like bridges and those types of large structures. Um, but then uh, one summer I volunteered uh, for an educational institute called WindAid, um, which is based in Trujillo, Peru, uh, where they work with communities without access to grid power um, by building small-scale wind turbines. So two and a half kilowatt, 500 watt uh, turbines, where you build everything from the coils for the rotor stator, the porn resin with layers of fiberglass um, and carbon fiber for the blades and going out to the communities and putting up the single pole towers and um, plugging them in. And that basically opened my eyes to what renewables could do for communities. Um, We slept in a hot on the floor during our installation period and the morning after we installed these panels, they were playing music and doing all these things that maybe they wouldn't have done because they were previously running on gas generators that were very expensive uh, for them to continue operating. And so now that they had this continuous source of uh, free power, then that really changed their life. So after that, I was like, well, maybe the renewables is where I wanna wanna go. And uh, then after I graduated, um, Skidmore, I found the internship at AWS True Power, uh, who's now UL um, on the due diligence team. So they're doing independent engineering work and technical advisory work. For, um, it was just wind at that time um, for my team. And so I stayed there from 2015 to 2021, where I left as a senior project manager. So I had worked with 
massive developments of uh, greenfield wind projects, operational projects being sold or um, refinanced, and also repower projects, and learned all the or a lot of the uh, ins and outs of the renewables field, and started to learn about all the major players, everyone from the uh, companies constructing the wind farms to uh, the power purchasers to um, the utilities and um, the operators. And that's kind of how I connected to Brookfield, which was my next move, um, where I joined um, the Brookfield operations team, uh, their wind operations team as a field operations engineer. And so at that in that role, I was involved in um, root cause analysis, um, uh, key risk management programs, including uh, risks related to blades, lightning foundations, um, and basically any sort of project that I could look at to maximize potential generation and minimize cost. Um, and so that gained me a lot of real world experience, I would say, in in the sense that when you're on the IE side of things, uh, especially when you're just talking about planning projects versus operating projects, uh, getting the nitty gritty of what do I do now that this turbine failed or this blade broke or um, we have cracks in this foundation. And so um, I learned that it's always not as, things aren't as always neat as they want to appear in a contract. Um, and I definitely grew in lot, a lot in, in that role. And now I am at Anel, where I um, am a project engineer uh, responsible for developing projects um, of both of wind, solar, and storage. Um, so this is a big learning opportunity for me, being on the development side of things and also jumping into the solar and storage technologies. That's that's awesome, Pauline. It's cool to see kind of the the trajectory too, and working at like Nae and then Brookfield, and then getting on the development side. Can you kind of talk a little bit about um, even for for those that may not know, like kind of like what what an IE does and what their role is in the wind industry, and then kind of then Brookfield and and Enel as as owner operators. Definitely, yeah. So the the IE, the independent engineer on a project is either hired directly by a developer owner or by a bank or other financial institution. Um, but they're basically to do the independent check on what's happening with the project. So if you're building a new wind farm or uh, handing over a wind farm, you want to make sure all your contracts that you're putting together are um, adequate and interact with each other properly, that you're covering your full scope and your schedule properly. Uh, you want to double check that your permits are in place. You want to ensure that your energy estimates for your project um, are, are correct or as accurate as they can be. Um, you want to make sure your technology is appropriate for where you're building. Um, and you want to make sure all your civil electrical designs are um, both adequate for your project and meet applicable codes and standards. So the IE basically can cover and review all of those and provide just kind of that double check and that reassurance that um, say I'm a bank wanting to invest in a, in a project. Okay, the project is telling me this, is this actually accurate? And the independent engineer can, can validate that and help 
sign off on certificates for, for closing and that sort of thing. Um, and so that differs from the developer owner operator world in that you get all of the, like kind of mentioned before, all the nitty gritty of actually pulling that information together. Um, so right now I'm working on a similar project that's nearing completion and um, all these nuances of the design that maybe we checked and double checked, but oh, we realized it that this got wired wrong and now we have to fix it and we have to get that approved. And, and then we send those final clean neat packages to the IE to say, see, we did this right. Um, but there's a few uh, bumps along the road that you get to work with when you're, when you're actually in the owner or developer. What's it been like now that you're starting to get more exposure to, to the like solar and, and storage storage side? What have, you, what have you learned so far? Oh. <laughs> I mean, I, I, oh. I think, I've always tended towards wind because I really enjoy going out to a wind farm. I love climbing a wind turbine. I think they're just incredible pieces of technology. And when you can be a hundred meters up in the air and just look all around you, it makes you feel pretty small. Um, <laughs> but I do fully believe that the renewable uh, and our renewable and sustainable future is dependent on uh, diversity of uh, technologies. So. Uh, learning about solar is something that I've almost been putting off, but um, it's been exciting to kind of understand the nuances of different modules and how the inverters work and how you can configure solar farms such so differently that um, there's a lot of information that goes into the build process and the design process. But then once you get to operations, especially if you're doing kind of a fixed system, the operations is much more straightforward than wind where you have um, gearboxes 100 meters in the air that fail that you need to replace and that sort of thing. Um, and then batteries, I think just new to the, relatively new to the whole industry. And um, I think there's gonna be a lot of strides happening over the five, next five, 10, 20 years. Um, and I think Anel is pushing to be on the forefront of that. Um, whether it's what specific uh, chemical batteries that we're using or even exploring kind of other types of battery technology, such as gravity-fed batteries and all of that. And there's no stone that goes in turn. So can you expand a little bit on that, where where Anel thinks, or where Anel or you think kind of battery storage is going to go in the next five to 10 years? I feel like that's gonna that's a hot topic that I keep hearing about. Everybody's talking about battery storage, and and that's an important um, aspect of renewable energy, and and where that is going, and that's a lot of the projects you're working on right now, right? Yeah, I I think a lot of developers are hard pressed to build a new project without some combination of renewable and battery, um, solar and battery, wind and battery. Um, uh, I think. I think what the primary advantage that batteries provide is uh, ensuring that any renewable energy that's produced doesn't go to waste. Um, there's obviously fluctuations in uh, availability of resources, whether it be solar at night or wind on uh, wind turbines on a windless day. Um, but when the resource is high and the demand is low, that energy just doesn't go to use right now. And if we can take advantage of 
storing that and then dissipating it when the demand is higher or when the resource is lower, then that can help equalize and stabilize our transmission system, um, which is a huge limiting factor right now in the development of uh, renewables is our transmission system. But I mean, I'm still learning a lot about the specifics of the actual technology. I, I have a friend that works at GM and works on the uh, electric car side of things, and she's constantly pushing her team and her company as, as it can be to make affordable electric cars. And that all ties into this uh, technology of um, how are we making these batteries? And then also ties to how are we forcing um, these batteries because the hardest thing in my opinion about battery technology is especially if you're talking like lithium ion or anything chemical based or anything that requires rare earth elements is those harvesting practices can actually be very dicey and um, unsustainable for the local community that you're harvesting from and so if we're not thinking about batteries and, and all technologies as the circular economy and from cradle to grave, then we're still not being cleaner than we were yesterday. So you mentioned uh, a lot of the, the limitations and the, the current challenges on the on the battery storage side, but uh, what about with with wind? Are there certain just challenges um, that you think a lot about, whether they're macro or just day to day stuff that that you ran into either at Brookfield or or in your your new role? I think. I think the challenges for wind in the U.S. rely a lot, a lot around size limitations by the FAA. Um, like we're we're basically maxing out how big we can build um, wind turbines in in a lot of the U.S. Um, but then I think a lot of it comes down more around regulatory and community acceptance, um, especially um, as we're trying to build resources closer to um, demand um, the, and kind of a lot of the middle of nowhere great wind resources are being taken up um, or have been built up over the last couple decades here. But um, there's always the NIMBYs that <laughs> they're not in my backyarders that that don't want that wind farm there, but don't necessarily understand the benefits um, and, and that sort of thing. Um, the other thing related to wind, I would say is offshore technology. I think it's definitely growing. I mean, we have approval to build off, off Massachusetts right now. And um, New York seems to be pushing big for that as well. But I think West Coast wind with the development of adequate um, floating foundations um, for the deep waters is going to be an interesting growth pattern um, as well. So what are some of the biggest challenges that your team faces right now at NL? At NL? Um, yeah. yeah. And then we can go back to Brookfield and some of the <laughs> things that you guys dealt with there. Yeah, I, I think right now, um, probably around PV module sourcing, I think there's uh, basically almost all PV modules come out of China and there's uh, a limitation on how many how much they can produce and um i don't know a whole lot about the kind of transportation and import um situation but i know that there's always loopholes to get through for for that side of things as well 
Um, a big thing that Anel is doing to try and combat that is expand our our own factories for PV module production. Um, so we currently have a smaller capacity um, production plant in Italy that we're working to expand the capacity production capacity of right now. And then we're also planning to build our first US-based um, PV um, production plant. I think by 2025. Um, so trying to circumvent the need for uh, external uh, foreign sourcing for development in the U.S. Yeah, supply chain issues seem to be a common <laughs> a common problem we've been hearing a lot of. The COVID trigger word, supply chain. Yeah, I know. I know. Everybody saying that they would be all figured out by 2023 is not actually... <laughs> happening no not really but um what are some of the the big challenges that you you and your team dealt with when you were at Brookfield then too I think let me try and (laughs) think back to four plus months I know know. Uh, (laughs) that's that's tough I think maybe tied to supply chain in terms of technology is always supply chain of personnel um just making sure that we're we're adequately staffing all of our our wind farms and our asset management team so that you can pay enough, enough attention to the small details uh, as to what's happening and uh, avoid any sort of critical failures or, or gaps in, um, in operations that can lead to safety or loss of production issues. Kind of shifting to the, like on, on technology, which is also, also broad. Um, but if there's one kind of gaping technology hole that, you could fill in the industry, what, what what would it be? I think, I don't know if it's technically a gaping hole anymore because um, I think Vestas has recently made it, or recently announced a big stride in this, but I think blade recycling or kind of end of life for, I mean, all technologies, um, whether it be PV panels or, or blades, um, but, um, the end of life and repurposing and recycling opportunities for a lot of these technologies isn't fully vetted and fully ready to accept the mass of the large supply that's going to start hitting um, end of life in the next 15 to 20 years. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, the certified life for a wind turbine is 20 years, maybe 25 years if you can get the OEM to issue that extra cert, but um, and wind farms are still running 30 plus years, but we've had wind farms online. Um, I mean, I started in wind in 2015 and saw uh, hundreds of megawatts go on in 2015, and we're already eight years later. So when we start to hit 2050, um, the influx of what we need to either repurpose or recycle is going to be uh, very high. And I think um, we as a general population uh, need to be ready for that and think about what we can do to ensure that it all just doesn't go to landfills. Do you have any thoughts of like what, what, what you think that looks like in five, 10, 15 years? Um, curious to maybe you can even speak to some of the stuff that like Vestas is, is doing. Yeah, I was, I worked um, with, there's a blade working group within American clean power that recently issued uh a kind of white paper on blade repurposing and recycling opportunities. Um, so they 
we talk a lot about a few different options in terms of repurposing. There's um, companies out there that are looking into using full-size blades or cut up portions of blades to do things like build pedestrian bridges um, or um, bus stop covers and that sort of thing. So keeping these blades that were already manufactured or that may still be structurally sound in their semi-original form and um, repurposing them. A big player in that network is the Rewind Network, which is a academic group that drives a lot of those research opportunities. Um, in terms of recycling processes, um, there's a quite a few different avenues that are being explored. Um, mechanical grinding, um, thermal recycling, uh, cement co-processing, and then chemical recycling, which is tied to what Vestas announced, I think, last week or two weeks ago. Uh, so they've found a way to chemically break down epoxy resin into virgin grade materials. So basically get it back to its starting point. Um, I don't know a ton of the nuances or what that actually means. I'm not a chemical engineer or even close to it, but uh, I know that it's a really big deal because the, the epoxy resin was driving a lot of the issues in terms of the recyclability of turbine blades prior to this point. So. I'm excited to see where Vestas goes and I hope they kind of make it an industry-wide knowledge. Yeah. Do you, do you see that the, the recycling or reuse of um, a lot of the end of life of wind turbines is probably one of the biggest challenges of wind or do you see other areas as one of the big challenges? Um, I think in terms of development of new projects, it's, it's our grid is probably the biggest limiter. Uh, I mean, it's so hard to, because of the lack of transmission build out um, from resource hubs, such as like central US where the wind is ample, um, but the dem demand is on the coast. We don't have the right amount of grid upgrades to accompany that. And so I think with so many new developers out there and so many developers trying to just fully expand the amount of capacity they're putting in the ground each year. Um, we need to make sure that our transmission providers can take that on um, and that we're, we're gonna maintain a stable grid to ensure that everybody on it will still have access to electricity throughout the whole process. Shifting a little bit, like in the, in the, in the new, in your new role, are you working on like many, many projects at, at once? And is like the development pipeline, I know Anel obviously keeps growing and growing and imagine the development pipeline is quite large. So I'm sure you're very, very busy, but like, what does your kind of work day look like? And is it just kind of one project at a time and you're, you're on your first or, or what's that look like? Um, definitely not one at a time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm still quite new to my role. Um, I think post HR onboarding, I'm about like one and a half full months of being a real, real employee, real employee. <laughs> um, so right now I have three projects on my plate all in various stages of development. Um, one is a solar plus battery that's a few months away from COD. Um, another is a solar project that we're in the stages of permitting. Um, we have a kind of 
executed interconnection agreement. Um, but now we need to secure our panels, inverters, and designs, and all the fun stuff that goes into actually developing a solar plant. Um, and then I have a wind farm that's quite a few years out um, from being ready, but basically in the point of uh, securing land agreements um, with landowners to decide where we can actually build before we, we go beyond that point. So right now I have three projects. Um, I think my team has on average probably anywhere from five to eight projects per person. Um, it's Every project has a life cycle, right? We're in periods of high demand and low demand in terms of mm, our, a specific role needing to put in a lot of effort. So my project that's near completion is um, very needy and requires a lot of attention. There's uh, 20 emails an hour that come through my inbox that um, are asking nuanced questions about um, things to solve before we can close the project. Um, but then my wind project that's years out is basically off my radar unless somebody pings me with a question. For somebody who maybe is newer to the industry or is not in the industry at all, maybe listening to this podcast, could you maybe give um, a little overview of what your job is or the project life cycle that you go through to develop a, a project? Definitely. Yeah. So, um, kind of what I alluded to earlier, there's a lot of different players in the industry yeah. and um, you get a project online, you have to coordinate with all of them. So the first step with any project is um, securing land and securing an interconnection agreement. Um, you need the interconnection agreement to plan to connect your project to the grid um, with uh, the transmission provider. And so if you don't have that, there's no point in building because you're going to have a, a project that may be structurally sound, but that has no electrical connection. And you, if you can't sell your energy, then you, you can't build a project. Uh, it's not economically sustainable. Um, and so once you get to that point of having the interconnection agreement um, and then the land, then you start to work out your supply chain. Um, and so you decide what technology you're procuring um, and what resources available um, kind of ties to one, two and two. So um, high solar area, high wind area, um, get your energy assessment done, optimize your layout based on generic parameters, and then kind of tie it in with specific suppliers and work on getting those kind of contracts executed. Um, and then you work on securing the parties that are going to build your project, um, your EPC contractors. Um, and your high voltage VOP contractors. So you need to build both your actual resource, but then your substation, your transmission line, your O&M building, <clears throat> kind of all of those ancillary parts, um, you, you got to plan out in advance. And then you kind of hit the ground running at some point and hope that construction goes smoothly in uh, any months to maybe a year, depending, year plus, depending on how big of your project is. Um, and that's kind of where my role as being on the development team ends. Um, once we return to construction, we hand over all the information we gathered throughout that whole process, all our construction documents, all our design documents over to our operations management team, and then they take it over from there. 
Yeah, that was going to be my next question, like what that what that handoff looks like. So is it kind of development? Is there like a construction team and then they hand it over to like operations and asset management? Is that more or less kind of what it's like? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's accurate. Um, and I've seen various structures on how that that works, especially when I was on the IE world, um, understanding how that handover can go. Um, but in theory, you have a, a set of documents that uh, encompass all the important aspects of your project um, from the design through construction phases. And then um, that is handed over to your operations team in some sort of nice, clean file format that, <laughs> that, that probably does not exist. But uh, in theory, they get all the documents they need and can um, be self-sufficient um, from that point forward. Is there, uh, is there like much collaboration between all those groups, like even early on and talking, like, like for example, probably in an extreme case, um, if there's no communication, I'd imagine you could have maybe operations and asset management be like, oh, why did we select this technology or things are just getting kicked over. So I don't know, um, maybe you could speak to like, like how that works or if there's like challenges there, I can imagine too, as companies get larger and larger and there's different, different teams working on that handover is probably really important. Definitely. Uh, and now in particular has a, a wide breadth of specialists. Um, we have procurement specialists, we have logistics specialists, we have um, kind of almost documentation specialists and we have the O&M crew. Um, there is probably 20 different departments of specialists in an L. Um, I think my hardest job has been learning what all the departments are and who's actually in them so that I know who to ask the right questions for. Most of my emails say, if you're not the right person, please do <laughs> the right person. Um, but we do try, we work very closely um, and we always kind of cross check anything that we're, we're doing with those other departments. Like even from the point of um, setting up a tender to uh, get a an O&M building built. We have kind of our template document of what that contract's going to look like. But before we go to the actual tender process and solicit for bids, we'll ask the O&M team saying, okay, is this an appropriate size? Do we need something different? Is there something in this local area that we need to consider? And then well, in the environmental and permit team, team maybe, are there special permits that we need to build this type of building in this region? Um, so yeah, constant communication. I think avoiding siloing is every big company's um, um, Achilles heel. But I think if you can overcome that and if you can figure out how to talk to your employees effectively, then that's how you build a successful project. This is a little bit of a tangent, but it's something that we we talk a lot about at, at Sky Specs and like O&M and, and Asset Health. And definitely it's been awesome to see the industry mature and, and think more about proactive maintenance. But in a lot of cases, it's well past like warranty in year five, six, seven, when, when a lot of these organizations, not necessarily, it's not necessarily the case anymore, but it used to be that there wasn't a ton of health records from, from the beginning of life in those first few years of operation. And we're, we talk a lot about how do we start that whole process like earlier on? So 
organizations are thinking like proactively and uh, there's health records for these things, even during like the planning, planning phases. So it's kind of where the, where the question came from too, because we're, we're trying to educate the industry on the importance and thinking about things a lot earlier. Yeah. And I mean, I think in general, the growth of um, kind of computer technology has changed a lot over the last 20 years. I've, I had coworkers at UL that they said that they wouldn't, they would do the closing of a project. So a project that's reaching COD and we have to review the hundreds of pages of QAQC docs. They would sometimes have to go in and scan them every single paper and then send it over to the specialist or go into the O&M building. That itself fax and it over look, to them. <laughs> yeah, look at the physical copies. And so it's like, as as these documents are all becoming digital, it's making that so much more accessible that um, you're not waiting for a little CD and CD-ROM in, e- in your yeah. mail to come through so that you can review this so the project can close. I mean, the, the downside of all the information being digital from the start and um, quickly accessible is that now closings um, have high urgency and you're like, you get 40 emails and being like, okay, can you review these in three minutes so that we can close? <laughs> we see so you can put all the paper into escrow tonight so we can close tomorrow at 9 a.m. And you're like, wait, wait. <laughs> it's already 10 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I I think um, back to your point of that kind of wealth or depth of knowledge is when you start with a digital, as long as you can encourage your clients to have it saved appropriately or with some sort of in some sort of logical manner and that's handed over appropriately between teams and different stages of the project then that's how i think we can overcome that kind of knowledge gap for sure well i have one more question for you unless josh you have another question oh okay okay all right uh so is there anything you wish we would have asked you or do you think uh, is just really important for our listeners to understand about the work that you're doing and you haven't talked about yet? I think one of the misconceptions probably of the renewable industry is that it's not actually environmentally friendly. Um, I mean, I have family members that when I talk about working in wind, they just talk about the birds that it kills. And <laughs> yep, I've heard that. <laughs> all, all those stuff family members. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's the number one thing. And I don't think a lot of people realize a how many hoops or parameters there are in place before any of these projects can be built. The number of environmental studies, the the all the detailed assessments that go into building a solar, wind, any sort of project, there's a lot of them. And <laughs> a lot of them with respect to birds, there's uh, um, specific studies that go into place to ensure that you're not going to compromise um, um, sensitive species. And if there's a chance that you are, you either have to relocate or you have to do other sort of um, supplemental activities outside of your wind farm footprint to encourage the growth of that species elsewhere. Um, So I think that the big fans outside or the large fields of big black panels aren't necessarily the thing that everybody loves to look at, but there's the remembrance that they are 
the industry is trying to do its best to do what's good for the um, environment as a whole and not just what's in our backyards. Yeah, no, I think that's really important to remember. Pauline, too, I wanted to I want to say thank you for for sharing your renewable story. It was so cool to hear all this and even just working with with you over the, the past past few years uh, at Brookfield, you've been so helpful for for our team, and um, it's been it's been awesome. We're we're super excited for you too, and your 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 new role. And um, excited too that Anel has been a been a key partner and, and customer of ours as as well. So great, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, always been fun talking with your team and getting to know your team. And I mean, working with your stuff and the lightning assessments and investigations of the blades is probably the major part of my my last role that I that I miss. But um, yeah, thanks for having me on and uh, despite many delays and trying to schedule this, <laughs> making it work. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we finally got to do this and thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of Climate Chronicles brought to you by SkySpecs. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe to our podcast so you can be the first to know when we release the latest episodes. If you really liked it, make sure to give us a five-star review. See you next time.